folks, I'm Christian Haynes, and I'm from Gamers with Glasses, and I'm joined by Roger Whitson. Hi there. And we're the general editors or the managing editors for Gamers with Glasses. And we are joined by a special guest today who we're going to be interviewing, and it's Patrick Jagoda. Roger, why don't you introduce Patrick? All right. Patrick Jagoda teaches games at the University of Chicago. Um, he's also the author of three books, um, Network Aesthetics, The Games of Jason Rohrer. I never know if I pronounced that right, so apologies if I didn't. Um, and now Experimental Games, uh, Critique, Play, and the Design and Design in the Age of Gamification, which is out in December. Um, hey, Patrick, how are you doing today? I'm great. It's awesome to be with you all this morning and, and get to talk about games a little bit. Yeah. How did you... Uh, how are you doing through the through the pandemic? How everything how's everything going? Yeah, it, I, I'm I'm healthy. Um, my friends and family have been healthy, so that's been lucky. And and have been playing too many too many video games, as I'm sure you all have as well. Yeah, um, Patrick wrote the great piece on Zelda: Breath of the Wild that was one of our first published pieces. So um, we're just we're glad to have him in here today to talk about his new book. Um, so Patrick, how did you get into gaming? I mean, I was born in the 80s and was drawn to games from a very young age. So the first console that I became obsessed with was the Nintendo Entertainment System and Super Mario Brothers, as was the case for many of us during that period. Um, and when it first came out, it was just too expensive. So I'd always play it at my friend's house. But eventually, many years later, um, my parents surprised me with my own console and I I think I became one of those memes of an 80s child running around screaming excitedly and then never wanted to leave the TV. So that was that was my introduction to gaming was um, Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. Do you have a favorite game? <laughs> That's an impossible question. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I'd probably say like the, the first game early on that was really inspiring to me was uh, the RPG Earthbound for the Super Nintendo. And then over the last few years, I've probably logged more hours on Stardew Valley than just about anything else. Um, but you know, generally, I'm I'm drawn to smaller indie games. So things like Undertale, uh, Pyre, uh, Luxurious Superbia have been games that I've, I've really been into in recent years. It's totally awesome. So, uh, what are you playing right now? Right now, right now, I'm playing two games. I'm playing uh, Hades, which is a roguelike or roguelite, mm. I guess it's called. Mm -hmm. And then also this comedic uh, interactive narrative game, After Party. So basically, I'm playing two games that are about hell. Uh, so apparently, I'm, I'm, I'm compensating for the awfulness of 2020 with uh, virtual journeys into the underworld, which are somehow preferable. Um, <laughs> But I'm, I'm I'm gearing up to eventually play the the new Zelda game Hyrule Warriors hopefully in a in a week or so. That's exciting. Um, yeah, I've been playing Hades too. I found it pretty fun. Um, so uh, I guess we're going to get into the into the into the book a bit. Um, Christian, you want to go ahead with that with the next question? Sure. Uh, so your book. <laughs> Experimental Games, the newest one, which, if I'm not mistaken, actually just came out today, or oh, not today, yeah. a couple of days ago uh, oh, right. for the print release of it, um, which is amazing. And congratulations on that. But maybe the first turn to ask, you know, the first question to ask is, what do you mean by the word experiment in the title? And I know that it's a term that you use in different ways in the book, but what are you going for with calling a book experimental games? Like what's experimental about a game? Is that a genre? Is that something that games do? Yeah, I mean, when I'm, when I'm using that word experimental in my book, I'm interested in the ways that both the sciences and the arts have used the concept. So in science, it has to do with hypothesis generation and hypothesis testing, right? So you isolate an independent variable to see how it affects a dependent variable. Um, but what constitutes an experiment changes wildly across the history of science, right? So you have like Robert Hooke's experiments at the Royal Society in the 17th century weren't the same thing as randomized control trials in like post-World War II big science in the 20th century. So I'm really interested in, in tracking some of those changes across what an experiment even is. But then we have like experimentation in art, right? So we have like Emile Zola's idea of the experimental novel. We have um, the kind of formal um, experimentations, both 
both formal and political in uh, modernism and postmodernism um, and, and so forth. And then in, in a third way, right, there's the experimentation of the economy. We have things like product optimization, research and development. Um, and I'm interested in that whole context via the experimental games. And when I use that term, um, I don't just mean like a genre or an orientation like avant-garde games or art games. Um, I'm, I'm more interested in games as artificial constructions that nudge and modulate reality's potential in ways that allow for observation that you couldn't have had otherwise, right? So for me, games can be more than entertainment or aesthetic objects, or, or even more than behavioral modification instruments. They're instead a way of running experiments with human thought and action um, that doesn't merely help us understand that thought, but to shape it and hopefully to change it for the better. So when we think about world making in games, right, when we think about a game making a world, part of what you're saying is that it makes a world in a lot of the same ways that you'd maybe set up a laboratory, like it makes a world in which the player playing can produce these results that we can observe and we can learn about the player and we can learn about maybe the worlds uh, that that player inhabits, the social worlds, uh, the environments that player inhabits and somehow game space or game worlds produce that ability to observe who and what we are. Yeah, and of course like that starting condition isn't naturalistic. It's like a bunch of designers designing what they want the world to be, right? There are certain sets of preconditions about this is the economy, this is the political system, this is the narrative. So the player is entering into conversation with a series of design decisions. But of course, many of us play not just one game, but tens or hundreds or, or thousands of games. And so we get to experiment with different kinds of systems. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting uh, when you were talking in, in the book about sort of the history of experiment generally, right? And that on the one hand, you're very careful to distinguish between, you know, games on the one hand and other forms of, uh, you know, entertainment or uh, story on the other. So you have a whole thing about, um, you know, games are very important because of their sort of interactive quality um, and the real time kind of, kind of interaction, as opposed to things like, you know, old sort of school hypertext or novels or whatever, where you may have parts of that that are, you know, somewhat interactive, but maybe just not on the same scale. But I, I thought you were doing that in an interesting way on the one hand. And on the other hand, um, it seems like you're trying to also, I mean, you are talking about games, but you're also talking about a sort of broader understanding of experiment, which I thought was really, really fascinating. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, for me, for, for me, it is both. It, it, it's not just that, um, that I, I mean, it, it has to be with, with the way that games aren't just allowing us to run other kinds of experiments alongside scientific ones, but are kind of like unique to the technologies, the electronics, the media that make up our world. I mean, this is what makes games so powerful to me is they're really easy to access for people. I mean, there are allegedly about 2.5 billion gamers in the world right now. We've moved away from this like very specialist understanding of consoles in the uh, 80s or 90s where there were a lot of like hardcore games created for people um, who wanted to test their skills, you know, much more toward like casual games and mobile games and, and art games, right? So there, there's this diversification of the market that you didn't have before. And this allows like a much broader range of people to come in as designers and players, even though it's not equal at all. I mean, this is a very white male cis um, world uh, early on, um, starting in the 60s and the 70s, but, but it has changed over, over recent years. And so it gives more and more people access to computation, which has become utterly ordinary and ubiquitous for so many people. Um, there, there's access to mobile phones and smartphones in a way that there wasn't even uh, 10, 10 years ago. Um, and so for me, it's, it's such an important way of like thinking through these screens that make up more and more of our world um, uh, everywhere. I mean, including the global South increasingly. Hmm. What's a game that really exemplifies that 
for you, Patrick, or maybe one of the games you talk about a lot of different games in the book. Uh, but is there a game that you would say would be like good for introducing folks to the kind of concrete notion or application of uh, the experimental game, um, maybe Undertale or another? Yeah, I mean, I'll give a couple of really quick examples. So like, uh, for me, it was easier to think about um, experimental avant-garde games, let's say, more than kind of mainstream AAA games early on, but you could talk about either. So like, you know, Jonathan Blow's Braid, which I talk about in the book, uh, experiments with game mechanics and gamer subjectivity, right? What it means for, for someone to, to be a gamer, uh, to be addicted to a game, to be dependent on certain conventions. Um, I, I've also been really interested in things like that game company's journey, which experiments with uh, network connectivity, um, what it means to play with another person across a distance. Um, you know, and, and then there are like really small games, like what Ian Bogos calls game vignettes that really isolate a particular problem. So you have things like, um, like he writes about Hush, uh, which is a, which grapples with the impossible survival during the Ru Rwandan genocide, or, you know, or I teach sometimes uh, Momopixel's Herna, which has to do with affects sur surrounding the uh, microaggression of fetishizing or touching a black woman's hair without permission. So all those games are like experimenting with certain um, feelings and interactions. Um, but more broadly, I would say something like, um, you know, I, I was talking to Ida Stern, the game designer at UCLA um, about a decade ago. And I remember he said to me that if, if you were around in the 1960s, you experimented with drugs. And if you were around in the 2000s, you were probably experimenting with World of Warcraft or massive multiplayer <laughs> online games. Um, you know, and maybe in 2020, it's not an either or decision between the two. But, oh, yeah. um, but I take the point that um, a game-based social world uh, catalyzes human and non-human relationships that yield unexpected outcomes, right? So WoW became a space for theory crafting and metagaming and speed running and trying out forms of network intimacy and relationality and stuff like that. Um, so these are all places where I think you could think about experimentation, not just at the level of form, but at the level of like human, human interactions, connections. Yeah. Right. I think one, maybe one of the things we might define just to make sure that we are we have like a working definition of it is that notion of subjectivity here I think is really important for you you've said it a few times and I think one of the things you're getting at is that sometimes we think about games in terms of okay there's this mechanic or there's that braid allows you to do you know interesting things with time uh but there's also like the person playing the game, the person playing the game is gonna be different, right? Like, you know, we're often fond of when we talk about like game reviews or something in games journalism of saying like, remember the reviews just based on opinion. So there can be different reviews, which is maybe a healthy thing to do. But there's also a way in which like the game creates the player as well as the player being their own person. I think that's part of what you're getting at, right? Is like different games ask different things of different people. And not only that, but they reshape people. And that's part of why we get in the game is not just because we want to be the same person playing the same games over and over, but because we want them to kind of reach out to us and change us. And that's one of the things that I loved about experimental games, which is I really feel yeah. like you highlight not just how games do that, but also that there are stakes for them doing that, mm -hmm. right? And maybe this is a chance we could turn to one of the interesting phrases that I know Roger found really compelling. I did too, uh, which was that phrase uh, where you called games philosophical machines. Um, and I'd love to just know what you mean by that. Like, what does it mean that a game is a philosophical machine? I get the image of like Socrates being stuck inside a PlayStation <laughs> 3 or something, like trying to claw his way out. Yeah, I, I love that. That's like, actually, you, you just took my answer. Uh, no kidding. But um, I, I guess part of part of my attempt with this book was to put game studies into even thicker discussion with uh, critical theory and philosophy. And, you know, most commonly people still think of games as works of entertainment or culture or sometimes art. But I'm also interested in them as philosophical technologies that help us make better problems and create new concepts. And I'm certainly you know, not the first person to do that. I'm, I'm drawing from earlier contributors like Ian Bogos, Mackenzie Wark, uh, Katie Salen, uh, Alex Galloway, Mary Flanagan. I mean, these, these people were um, thinking about games as concepts at a very early moment. Um, but, I, but I believe that we do a disservice to games by just treating them as consumer products. And in fact, you all don't in Gamers Without Glasses. This is one thing I really, really love about um, your, your site. 
Um, so instead, like you all, I think I try to approach any game as a platform for generating uh, affects, ways of being, concepts that didn't exist prior to the moment of play. So like wh when I say games are philosophical, I, I don't mean that they're helping us discover the truth about the world. Um, I like the way that the philosophers, uh, Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari put this, right? They, they write that um, philosophy is the art of forming, inventing, and fabricating concepts, right? For them, concepts aren't just discovered within some long-standing historical tradition of thought. Instead of operating as models or descriptions of the world as it already exists, concepts are constructed assemblages, right? They're acts of thinking that address problems, push against the present, and create the world in new ways. And I think that's really powerful. That's, that's what I think games are doing if we look at them the right way. They're, they're little machines for, uh, for reforming, reforming the world around us. Well, and I think, uh, you know, you brought this up a few times, uh, this term affect also, which I think uh, is, is pretty amazing in this context, right? Like, so, you know, I, I, I do a lot of meditation myself, like, um, and so I've become really sort of uh, fascinated by the ways in which I'm not always as much in control of myself as I think I am, you know? Um, and so, uh, you know, in, in America, and I think we've seen this in the pandemic, like lots of people think, oh, I'm just this, you know, this person making decisions about my life. And um, those decisions are usually rational. And um, I've become so aware during the pandemic that that's not the case at all. <laughs> like, I have these very strong emotions. Sometimes I will play, for instance, Tetris, just to calm myself down and to like, kind of, uh, relax a little bit after a particularly hard day. Um, but, you know, I'm really struck with this image that I got while reading your book that um, games are kind of playing with this part of yourself that is maybe even before you're having a kind of conscious thought about it, you have these sort of emotional uh, pre-conscious kind of reactions to the way that a character moves or the way that a certain, uh, uh, thing uh, occurs on a game. Um, and so like, you know, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this, the importance of this term affect to your work and, and how games, if there's a particular game that you think works really well in terms of how it sort of experiments with our, with, with, with affect. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so when I'm using the term affect, which I'm, you know, taking from affect theory, I distinguish it from feeling and emotion um, in just the way that you're talking about Roger, right? So like, a feeling is personal and narrativizable. Like I feel sad. Like I can, I can tell you that I feel sad. And emotion is like the way that I show that to the world, right? So if I start crying, I'm, I'm emoting sadness. I can, I can fake that, right? I can have fake tears, but I'm still like expressing that outwardly. Um, whereas like affect is in exactly the way you're talking about is like, is, is non-conscious and interpersonal. Right, it's, it's like it happens between people, it occupies an atmosphere. And I think it reveals to us in the way that you're talk, talking about that like we're not sovereign, we're not in control of the situation entirely, that we're always like an element of a larger um, system, for instance. Um, and that there are all these like potentials uh, that can be actualized, but, but aren't always, that are available to us in any moment. Um, um, and for me, that's a really powerful way of thinking about freedom um, via people like Brian Masumi, for instance. Um, but you know, I, I think uh, I think many games um, show off affect in terms of like how quickly they ask us to respond. So, like I use StarCraft as an example in the book, um, especially thinking about like expert StarCraft players and the fact that they can produce like 600 actions in a minute or something like that. Um, it just shows you like how much they're processing tactically at, uh, at a non-conscious or a habituated level of, of being. Um, and, and, and when I talk about experimentation in games, I, I do mean it's not always like the, the sovereign scientist who is going out with a problem that's like uh, fully formed that they're testing out. It's also people getting thrown into the middle of a world and figuring things out at the levels of their sensations and perceptions and habits and stuff like that. You know, one of those worlds that, you know, I think you talk about quite a bit in this book, 
book uh, and experimental games. Um, and maybe it's better to just call it like the conditions we're living in. And that's neoliberalism, right? And, you know, it, I was bringing it to mind because of course neoliberalism, you know, just to maybe get a definition on the table is this way of organizing politics and the economy in relationship to one another, where we think about everything in terms of market transactions, in terms of buying and selling, in terms of like accumulating capital, including like, you know, human capital, uh, it's uh, privatization of the government, it's uh, privatizing services. So like when uh, even just a municipal locale and a state contracts out uh, their garbage collecting and lays off their uh, garbage workers and things like that. Um, and there's all kinds of examples of it. And you get in a, a lot in your book and you point out that there's this longstanding connection between neoliberalism and games and particularly with the notion of game theory, which doesn't have as much to do with like games as we usually think about them, but it's actually about like gaming the system and about thinking how people make decisions and choices. And you mentioned Masumi and the notion of freedom earlier. And I know one of the quotes that we liked uh, from your book, uh, and I think you're quoting Masumi saying this is that freedom isn't chosen, it's invented. And of course, you know, part of what I wanted to have us think about is one, I just wanted to hear you talk a little bit about why you're bringing neoliberalism and games together. Um, and then maybe from there, I would love to think with you for a minute about the, maybe one of the most popular, if not, I think we can just say the most popular genre or subgenre of games being played right now, which is the battle royale game, mm. right? With games like Fortnite and PUBG or Player Unknown Battleground and any number of others, right? Spellbreak, I think is a newish yeah. one. Um, but maybe we could just start out by talking about what's this connection between neoliberalism and games and why is it so fruitful for you, so important for you in your book? There's, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff in what you said, Christian, both on the neoliberalism front, and I hope we can come back to this idea of freedom, because I think that's a really important concept here. Um, but with neoliberalism, I mean, that, that was one of the starting points for me in some ways, was just this, like, really flat observation that, you know, games, video games start to take off in the 1970s, and neoliberalism as a system of thought and a kind of... Um, um, worldview underpinning economics also takes off at about the same time in the in the 1970s. So I was just really interested in how economics and culture are shaping one another from the 70s to the present. But in order to do that, I had to go back even further uh, to think about economic game theory. And I remember, like when I was in grad school, there was uh, uh, there was almost like this joke where I would tell people like, "Oh, I'm really interested in game studies," which wasn't a very well developed field back then. And people would say like, oh, do you mean like the prisoner's dilemma? Do you mean economic game theory? And I would always say, no, like those are two separate things. But then I started thinking about it more and more, um, even like later in grad school and realizing like, oh, like there are all these like interesting connections between the people who are making game theory and making war games around this time and the emergence of, of video games as a form. So that for me was a, a starting point for part of the historical story this book is trying to tell. And then moving from game theory to behavioral economics uh, to neoliberalism for me, like unlocked um, some of the things that um, that games do for us um, and the relationships that they form between work <clears throat> and play, for instance. I mean, it's yeah, it's worth noting that so often game designers and people studying games think about games primarily in terms of decision and choice. Like I reviewed uh, Sid Meier's memoir for a website recently, and you know he has that famous uh, definition of game design in terms of like allowing the player to make interesting decisions uh, that he's been saying at you know at least since the late 1980s, early you know the mid 1980s or something, and did a GDC talk about it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but you know we. Talk talk about this and we talk about like oh the freedom for decision and we talk about bioware games and how they you make choices including choices about your companion and things but we don't always like to talk about because maybe it kind of takes away from this narrative about player freedom is the fact that there's been decades half a century a little more than half a century in fact of economists and behavioral scientists and so on who have dedicated their lives to figuring out how we make decisions and manipulating or at the very least guiding, nudging, pushing us towards certain kinds of decisions or towards making certain sets of decisions, right? Narrow, constrained sets of decisions. I'm really, um, I'm really, really quick, I'm sorry, but I'm really no, taken in this whole conversation about uh, Facebook, of course, right? Like that's, that was, I, that was in the back of my head the whole time I was reading this book. And like the whole idea that Facebook is playing this experiment with 
everyone. And we don't even really know, you know, just to make more money, right. To keep us on their site um, and to make more money and it's driving everyone crazy. So like, it's kind of, it's fascinating to see this kind of, this kind of weird fruition occurring where behavioral theorists are really controlling us in a way. Yeah. But maybe bringing it back to the book and one of the questions that I think, you know, Roger's kind of nudging us towards as well is the question of competition, right? Because that's ultimately like neoliberalism is so much about putting people in competition with another and not just putting people in competition, but like saying, hey, competition is the best thing possible. Competition makes us the best possible. And I think we're pretty familiar with this in gaming as well, because so often, you know, that's what games are about, especially multiplayer games. They're about competition. And so what's your take on competition in gaming? What's your take on competition in neoliberalism? And maybe that's maybe a chance to also talk about the battle royale. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it, it's true that so many of the games that we play and think about in the United States or like even in the world right now are competitive games, right? I mean, we're, so many people are obsessed with sports even uh, in terms of like very popular games or um, battle royale games are, are meant to be competitive at their core. And the weird thing about that is this is totally a historical contingency. There are so many kinds of games that aren't inherently competitive and yet that's the strand that really took off. Um, especially in the US. And um, I, I think a lot about Roger Kaiwa's breakdown of like different kinds of games, right? And he talks about games of competition, games of chance, games of mimicry. So like theater games, for instance, or role-playing. Um, and then he talks about games of vertigo, which is this weird category that encompasses like riding on a tilt-a-whirl or having these like strong affective responses to things. There are also games of cooperation and collaboration, but but even though we have examples of all of those in contemporary gaming, it's competitive games that make up like at least 90% of the market. Um, and this tells you something about our culture, but it also shows us that like it could have been otherwise and it can be otherwise. Um, and I do think, you know, neoliberalism also like uh, relies upon competition as you're talking about. It relies upon choice, which, which also like isn't freedom. Like that's another really important thing is we sometimes conflate those two words in practice. It's like, because I can choose as a consumer between product A and product B, that makes me free in some way, or, or does it? And, and I think, yeah. you know, I mean, you, you brought up this quote before from Masumi, uh, the, the one that freedom isn't chosen, it's invented, right? Um, I mean, I, I think that's worth bringing into this as well, because uh, for me, that's, that's a really powerful quote that freedom is never a given, it's an ongoing project of invention. This is something that I think neoliberalism sometimes takes away from us. Um, but a, a field, an academic field like affect theory give, gives us one version of what, how freedom can be invented. And I think another field that does this really well is, um, is black studies, right? So I'm thinking of like Sadia Hartman um, in her game-changing book, Scenes of Subjection. I'm thinking of, uh, Neil Roberts or Riley Snorton on the figure of the maroon and enslaved people taking flight from uh, US Caribbean and uh, Latin American uh, slave systems. Um, and, I, and I especially love the way that Fred Moten talks about this. Um, and and he, he asked, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he, he asked at one point, uh, is knowledge of freedom always knowledge of the experience of freedom, even when that knowledge comes prior to experience? So Moten of course answers that question um, via the black radical tradition. So that tradition pushes against the white enlightenment concept of freedom, but it doesn't simply critique or reject it. It's not just saying like, you can't have freedom of that sort. Um, Moton argues that there is also a prescriptive component to the black radical tradition. And this has to do with improvisation, right? Improvisation gives us a kind of freedom. Um, so the, like the Afro-diasporic tradition improvises through horror. So the horror genre offers one frame for thinking about slavery and racial discrimination. Science fiction is another genre that helps us think about how marginalized people invent freedom, right? Someone who was born into slavery ha ne never had the experience of certain kinds of freedom, right? What the North might have meant to someone born and enslaved on a Southern plantation in the 18th or 19th century might have been purely speculative until it happened. 
But it's precisely by fleeing a slave ship or fleeing a plantation that an enslaved person could invent a freedom that did not pre-exist that, that courageous act. And here we can loop back to games, right? Like Alex Galloway argues that a fundamental sense, uh, in a fundamental sense, video games are actions, right? Without action, games are only abstract rule sets or computer code, but through actions, players can invent freedoms, right? You see this, especially in, um, in metagaming or emergent gameplay practices in which people use games as they weren't intended. And for me, I also see it in, in types of improvisation that are most common in like radically collective worlding practices like alternate reality games or tabletop games. Um, and there's so much potential there to push against contemporary systems of power and discrimination. But of course, within neoliberalism, video games fall short of that goal all the time, right? That goal of inviting people to invent their own freedoms. Instead, they give us what you were talking about, Christian, which is like limited branching decision trees or reverse engineering an algorithm. Like when I play Mario Brothers, the way I'm supposed to be playing it, I'm reverse engineering the algorithm of where Mario needs to go to get through a level at that particular moment. That's fun, that's really engaging. I love doing that, but it's it's not necessarily the invention of freedom. Mm. Yeah. That is so compelling. That was just awesome. Um, like, so uh, I had so many thoughts there, but um, one of the things that came into my mind immediately, I love how you talk about improvisation. Uh, I loved how you were talking about invention. Um, it's reminding me quite a bit, again, of my meditation practice where oftentimes you'll get, you'll come up with, to a concept, right? They'll talk about, I don't want to get too much into it, but like there'll be this concept that, you know, when you hear about it, you sort of feel a little freer, um, but they're always careful in a lot of my practice to say, um, you know, it's not the same thing. It's, it, you, can, you can hear about an idea, but it's not the same thing as, you know, having the experience of freedom. It's not the same thing as um, sort of creating your own way of, of dealing with your own suffering, right? That's a very different thing. And so, um, you know, I, I, I wanna go back to um, this question of, of the pandemic because you know, uh, we're living in sort of a very difficult time right now, right? And, and games have this powerful way, I think, or at least I, I feel like you, you've written about this in a powerful way of um, helping us to sustain and develop uh, social relationships. Um, so you've explored this uh, both in uh, your new book, Experimental Games, but also Network Aesthetics. Um, are there limits to this? Um, or are there ways that gaming sort of like helps us push beyond those limits? Um, and do you think that there is a way that games might encourage uh, non-competitive, even non-capitalist forms of socialization? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, as a, as a game designer too, in addition to someone who writes about games, I really hope so, right? I, I mean, I, I, and I don't mean this in the sense of having faith in some future possibility. I mean, that what you're describing is a huge part of the motivation for me as a creator of games to keep going in that direction. Uh, I mean, recently, I, I, you know, I've worked with this amazing collective of designers to create a series of alternate reality games. Um, and I analyzed one of those in, in this book, a game called The Parasite from 2017. Um, and this was, this was like a, um, a large scale transmedia game that was created for 1800 incoming undergraduate students at the University of Chicago. And that game was an attempt to move beyond a quantitative framework of diversity in order to imagine forms of difference and dissensus, right? So we were really interested in this idea of like, you know, like historically um, students of color or first generation students or queer students didn't make their way quite as often to, to private institutions or, or, or top institutions or universities at all. But now a place like the University of Chicago, like at least on paper, you know, think, thinks about diversity and, does, and has like improved its numbers quantitatively. But, but then like, what does it mean qualitatively um, to also create an environment in which a conversation can be bi-directional between an institution and people who historically have not been part of that institution? And the idea for us was like, can we use a game? Can we use a, a kind of narrative world with game mechanics in order to push that that conversation and that culture in the right direction. Um, and we also created a game about climate change called Terrarium in 2019, and then two other games, um, A Labyrinth and Echo, 
that were responses to COVID-19. And all of those games were pushing against competition and striving for collective world making. Um, and I think, you know, like most video games are created for multiplayer engagement, right? There's still products created for a given market or social group. And the games that, that I'm trying to co-create uh, all take the formation of the player group as the game itself, right? We ask people to negotiate what kind of collective they want to be a part of. And I'm really excited about those kinds of games that don't take their audience as a pre-given assumption, but give people the space to collectively world make. I mean, this is something that I learned from tabletop gaming, but I think it's possible in digital and network gaming if we if we tweak it just a little bit. So I think what what you're what you're describing in a kind of non-competitive, non-capitalist uh, socialization, I, I do think it's possible. That's good. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought your work in as a designer as uh, well, Patrick, because obviously, I mean, I think one of the great things about your book is that you do bring that experience to it, right? You bring that experience of somebody who's actually thinking in terms of, okay, how will this work? Uh, can I set this up in a way that's going to produce a new kind of experience? Can I push against certain kinds of conventions? And I guess as a practitioner, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is what you're excited about, um, not just in what you're doing, but where you see the game industry at. Uh, and I mean that in the widest sense of including not only like AAA developers or people that are currently being bought by Microsoft, but also uh, the you know, it's too simplistic to call it the indie world um, because it's not one world. There's a whole slew of worlds uh, comprising indie developers. But what are you excited about? What kinds of tendencies or trends in game design uh, are making you rethink your own practices or making you want to make something new or, I don't know, giving you hope, I suppose? Yeah, I, I mean, like the, the easy answer to like where the industry is going would have something to do with the new PlayStation 5 or the Xbox Series X, but I'm actually less interested in where that can take us. That seems like a small tweak. I mean, I, I want a PS5, but I'm, but you know, very small. <laughs> um, you know, like before, before COVID-19, there were all kinds of debates about whether virtual reality or augmented reality would be the next big thing for gaming. And I think virtual reality has really struggled during the pandemic for obvious reasons, because it depends upon like, passing along this, this piece of hardware that could potentially, you know, like tra transmit the, the, um, the illness. But, but for various reasons, I think augmented reality has gotten people really excited. I mean, you see this in the business world, but you also see it on the kind of more formal and artistic side. So I think, I think we are gonna see an expansion of augmented reality games like Pokemon Go um, and whatever Niantic does, does next will probably have an impact. Um, but people are, are also just experimenting with what that kind of like large scale networked connectivity with augmented devices um, can do for storytelling. Um, on my end, like as a designer, I've also been experimenting a lot over the last couple of years with uh, Twitch and live streaming platforms. Um, so I've, I've worked with a, an amazing theater maker uh, and dramaturg named Heidi Coleman, a game designer named Ashlyn Sparrow, uh, a platform uh, and filmmaker uh, named Mark Downey and a, a um, and a sociologist named Kristen Schilf. And we've, um, we've been interested in what it means to combine game mechanics with improvisation that takes place with a live actor. So we've created a series of narrative heavy kind of reverse escape rooms in which people interact via chat with an actor who's trapped in a room. And I think there are so many opportunities for exciting liveness and emergent gameplay through this kind of format, not just through Twitch, but through like um, through like homemade live streaming platforms as well. One of the things that I love about hearing you talk about this, Patrick, and hearing about this really interesting experimental work you're doing that in a certain sense like breaks the boundary of the screen and the controller uh, is that it reminds us of a couple of things. One, that the setup we have now, the controller, the screen, the console, or the PC, the mouse, and the keyboard, it's kind of accidental. Like it's what we default to and there's reasons for that. And it, it is convenient, but it also didn't have to be that way. And if we think about an earlier moment of like arcade play, people were experimenting with and literally just touching at arcades 
20 or 30 different kinds of controllers. They move from one machine to the next and be a different controller or a different screen. The screen might surround them or not, right? And I'm actually, I'm interested in especially like Japanese developers, um, like, you know, people like Yoko Taro and others who in fact got their start very often uh, with Sega arcade machines, right? And then sort of narrowed it down and you see these like legacies there. But I, I really love hearing the way you talk about this. Um, because it just reminds us that there, yes, there's the screen, there's controllers, the box, but there's also other ways you could bring in an actor and you could bring in like a theatrical performance and still plug that input into a system. And there's all kinds of things that are possible. And, and, and there's so much, I mean, this is so cool hearing you talk about this because there, there are, I mean, there are alternative inputs like, you know, steering wheels on arcade machines, for instance, or light guns or things like that. But, but it's, it, it is like, alter, so, I started this conversation several years ago with uh, Stephanie Bollock and Patrick Lemieux, um, you know, who wrote Metagaming. Um, but, you know, something that we all have in common in terms of interest is uh, asymmetrical cooperative play. So like this earlier question that you asked about competition, like how do you move away from competition toward cooperation, collaboration, socialization? Um, you know, like we've been experimenting a lot with asymmetrical co-ops. So what if like the actor on one side has limited knowledge and the players on the other side have limited knowledge. So what if like the actor has like no access to Googling something, but the players do? Like, how can you create puzzles around that where they can work with one another um, across a limited network? Or, or in one of our rooms, we had this thing where um, this actor in this kind of like nuclear dystopian future um, had this ability to like conjure these symbols. So she would like, she would go like this and on the screen, there would be like a series of, of these really strange, uh, unusual symbols. And the players had to figure out like, what do you do with that? And there was no controller where it would have like an instant input output um, of like pressing a button and, and the character jumping or something. You had to figure out like, okay, I can't do anything here because I just have a keyboard and a mouse, but like, what can I just, like the person on the other side didn't see the symbol. So you had to describe those symbols to the person and then brainstorm about what she should do. And that became this like really interesting kind of intimate moment of trying to work through what she could do with her body to like unlock something in this, in this interface. That's just like one example of I think um, more interesting things that one could do without merely relying on controllers. Oh, that's really cool. That's really awesome. Um, so uh, back to the gamification question. So, uh, you know, I had this really interesting conversation with uh, Jason Michael, who also uh, writes for the site while I was reading your book. And uh, we were really sort of brainstorming, you know, talking about the sort of history of, of neoliberalism. And, and um, he had mentioned a conversation he had with another friend who works in the game industry about gamification. And uh, Jason, so one of the things that Jason uh, did was he, he, he was an Eagle Scout. So, um, you know, he's very aware of the process of gaining badges and like, and like leveling up in, in, in that, in that organization. Um, he was very curious, like, and about, uh, you know, these sort of prehistories of, of gamification, especially in the kind of history, the sort of longer history that you, that you draw. Um, of course, gamification sort of traditionally was seen, I don't know, like, maybe at most 20, 25 years old, right? Like where people are sort of taking the affordances of games and putting them into businesses or, or other organizations. Um, but one of the things that I think is really powerful about your book is that you sketch this much longer history and say that gamification in some form, maybe not in that sort of strictly defined form, but in some form has been with us for a long time. And so I wonder if you could talk about that. Um, and I wonder if there's particularly a connection to the military um, in terms of this type of thing. Yeah, I, I think this, these, these exa examples that you're giving um, that Jason gave too, of the Boy Scouts and the military are absolutely a part of this, right? So, um, you know, I mean, to define it really briefly again, like gamification is basically the use of techniques taken from games to achieve non-game ends. So it's a way of like instrumentalizing the game. So modulating consumer behaviors or improving education through games or something like that. And, you know, this can range from like um, the incentives offered by Foursquare back when that was a thing uh, all the way through educational games. Um, and, I, and I do think of like gamification as 
intensifying these earlier systems of extrinsic motivation. So basically rewards and punishments, right? The very stuff of what uh, psychology calls operant conditioning. So the Boy Scouts are absolutely a place where um, very superficial gamification had been going on prior to the more systematic applications in board games, video games, and mobile apps, right? Um, these methods have just become more sophisticated over the years with the expansion of uh, behavioral economics theories and the expansion of stat systems and leaderboards within video game design. Um, but one sees, uh, one sees various forms of like motivation and incentive structures in a variety of institutions, in a variety of workplaces. I mean, the, the military certainly is one place to go here because there's such a thick history um, of, of game design in the military. I mean, this goes back to like uh, Prussian war games in the in the 19th century or uses of chess uh, to train people uh, like, like leaders, political leaders strategically, um, or it has to do with the development of, of uh, video games by the military as a recruitment mechanism, for instance, in, in our own time or, or in the last few decades. Um, so yeah, I, I think there are so many interesting prehistories and those prehistories are like partially the prehistories of, of capitalism itself too. Yeah, I think one of the things that this brings out, this kind of way in which gamification blurs the boundary between just real life and games or, you know, the world, the virtual world of games and the worlds that we usually inhabit uh, is that, you know, games have consequences, right? And sometimes I think it's the negative consequences that often uh, get the most press, needless to say, uh, there are reasons for that. Gamergate uh, was a real thing with real consequences that, to be honest, I think are still things that are felt within both the game industry and within other communities of gaming. Uh, but maybe, I, I guess, maybe for our last question, um, we might ask, uh, what do you hope games will bring to the world? And also, what do you worry about them bringing to the world? Maybe we could reverse that. What do you worry about them bringing to the world? And what do you hope that they'll bring to the world? And we can, you know, there's so much negative surrounding us, we can try to end a little bit on a positive note. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's just so interesting, like the, the negative consequences you were talking about, first of all, like I, it, it's so stunning to me that in 2019, the World Health Organization uh, started talking about like video game addiction. And then about a year later, like one of the heads of the, of the World Health Organization tweeted that people should like be playing games during the pandemic to avoid face-to-face uh, -face interactions, right? So within a year, there was this like <sighs> reversal in terms of the negative consequences becoming positive in this very opportunistic way, um, which I find funny on both sides. And of course, you're right. I mean, we've had um, these debates about video game violence uh, in, like indefinitely. Like I, I, I won't even talk to journalists about this question anymore because it seems so absurd to me in some ways. Um, not, not that there would be a connection, of course, there's the violence of like the underlying logics of video games and things like that, but the, everybody wants there to be this like causality between video game play and like mass shootings or something. Yeah, Johnny um, played Doom, Johnny shot up the school. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, things just aren't that simple. Right, it's the Marilyn Manson and Doom argument from like the 90s or something. Um, which is like, you know, just not true for so many different reasons. But, um, but, but I do think, you know, um, it, it's not so simple too to flip it and say like games can instantly make the world better. Like, I mean, there is this like trumped up rhetoric um, around serious games or games for change, I think. Um, and there has been for some time uh, about like educational games kind of saving us or, um, you know, um, or things like that. And, and I don't, a lot of educational games are basically interactive quizzes. So the design there isn't particularly sophisticated. There are great examples of educational games. But there are also ones that are very, very reductive. Um, and so I think like we, there's a potential for me, like when, when I work with students, I don't want them to just be more sophisticated game analysts. So that's huge, but also to think like game designers, because I think like one of the powerful things about game design is that you're able to take a rule set and tweak it. And like so many of the systems in our world, whether it's racism or sexism or neoliberalism are basically like horribly designed games, right? Games that are like, like create hierarchy and have rule sets that advantage a very small number of people and disadvantage the, the majority. And I, and I think like, like I'm, not, I'm not being um, 
you know, I'm not trying to be sort of like heartless when I talk about racism as a game. I, I, like that's a metaphor more than anything else. But like, but both of these things have rules. And I think if we can think about the fact that rules are artificially constructed in our world, we can also make better rule sets. We can make better worlds, right? So like games are a way of understanding the constructedness of so much of our social and political lives. And I think that's, that's where the potential really lies. One of the things you say uh, near the opening of your book, Patrick, that I really like, and maybe it would be a good note to close on, is that so often we're looking for ways to solve our problems and for good reason. You know, when you have a problem, usually you want to solve it. But, you know, instead of maybe looking to games to be like, okay, how can they educate us to solve these problems? You ask, what if they can help us make problems where we think things are at, operating smoothly? Because sometimes things operate too smoothly. And one of the things I really appreciate about your book is that it produces problems that we need to think about. And it says, hey, look, if we look at games, if we take them seriously, even if they're not serious games, we can learn how things we take for granted might be problems, but also how problems can be these interesting sets of questions that can help us become different kinds of people and help us build different kinds of worlds. And I really appreciate that. So thank you for joining thank us, you. Patrick. Yeah, thank you so much. Such a pleasure to talk to both of you. And I, I can't wait to see what gamers without glasses or with, with glasses, not without glasses. We're all wearing glasses. Except for me. Except for me. Are you wearing contacts? <laughs> <laughs> I just don't wear it with my, with the, when I'm.